praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, that is the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let me pray. Father, those words are shout-worthy. Miracle of miracles that through the hearing of good news, the good news that begins with we are sinners unable to save ourselves, ends with this remarkable message of mercy that you sent your son and you came to us when we were not coming to you. You died on the cross for our sins. You were raised from the dead. And God, we just thank you that your son lives And that by simple faith in him, we can believe and we can find hope. Today, Father, we celebrate that good news. We celebrate that good news, Father, and we ask that today you would draw near. You would draw near with amazing grace. We need the grace to hear today. We need the grace to be humble enough in our hearts to say, Father, whatever You say, I want, I believe, and I want to follow you. We need the grace of humility to believe this precious word. And we need you to come near to us now. I ask, oh God, that you would pour out grace to encourage the faint-hearted, to draw near to the lonely, to uphold the downcast, and to give hope. To give courage to the discouraged. Father, we pray now that you would save in this room and you would sustain. Get glory for yourself, I ask. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Guarantee. Could you say that with me? Guarantee. So if I buy a phone... My phone came with a one-year guarantee. I think we all have a a little sense of skepticism when we hear this word guarantee. Because that comes with this kind of, have you ever seen those exponents next to it, those footnotes, you know, guarantee, and then the fine print so small you got to pull out the magnifying glass and it tells you what all applies in the guarantee. Well, my phone, it's had a few issues over its time, and and the guarantee actually worked. It was, you know, if it breaks, we'll replace it or we'll fix it. And so I was pretty pumped. You know, they kept their word, and my phone's still trucking along. The guarantee was this promise. It was the promise that they would do what they said they were going to do and that I have security in that. You look up the word guarantee in the dictionary, it says this. A promise that something will be done or that something will happen. It also says it's a state of being certain of a particular result. (laughs) Almost every guarantee on this earth we feel is pretty shaky. And we're just not sure is it really going to come through. Sometimes we bring that sense of skepticism to the table when God says what he says in this verse. That he has given us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. We've experienced things that were guarantees that fell through. And yet our God speaks here and says he's given his Holy Spirit as a guarantee. You know how my phone had a warranty? It had a warranty because I paid some money, right? I paid some money for my phone. That was the condition upon which the guarantee was going to be kind of exercised. But here's what we need to see. God speaks to us in these verses to alleviate our skepticism. Because the payment was not paid with my meager little bit of money. The payment for our lives, the guarantee of this promise was paid with the life of Jesus. Christ died the death that we deserved. He was crucified and crushed for sinners like us. He was raised from the dead, which is the confirmation that God keeps his word. And so we run to the end of the passage 
that we're looking at today, and we hear these words in verse 13. In him, that is, in Jesus, the one that to be all praise, honor, and glory, it just said in verse 12. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, what is this word of truth? It's the gospel of your salvation. It is the good news that sinners can have hope of eternal life. That hope is not conditioned upon your perfect performance. That hope is conditioned upon your simple faith in the perfect performance of Jesus on your behalf. It is conditioned upon you saying, I am helpless, unable to save myself. That's why Jesus came and died on a cross. He bore my sin on his shoulders. He died a sinner's death. He was raised three days later from the dead so that I know by faith in him, I will be raised to new life one day and be with him forever. This is the gospel message that calls every single person on the planet to wrestle with that news. And you must repent of your sins. Turn from it and say, I cannot fix myself and I cannot save myself. I must trust in the finished work of Jesus. I must trust in him. And by that simple declaration, the simple acknowledgement that Christ is my only hope, the Bible says you can be saved. This is what this passage says right here in verse 13. Look at it. And him you also, when you heard the word of truth, you do not just get saved spontaneously, poof. You get saved when you hear the good news. This is why we are passionate about being on mission where we are, speaking to our neighbors the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, going to the ends of the earth with the good news because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So it says in Romans 10. Here he says, hearing is not enough, though you hear the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in him. The idea of belief in the scriptures is not just I know certain facts to be true. The idea of belief in the scriptures is I believe these facts to be true and I love the God they speak of. It's affection. It's love. I believe in him. And here's the amazing news. That sets up the entire message. For anyone who hears the gospel message of hope beyond the grave, eternity with God in his presence, and believes that Jesus did it all when we could not, and that Christ was raised from the dead, you will be saved. That is, declared not guilty in the courtroom of God. There is no condemnation for you. His righteousness covers you. You are adopted into the family. And now what this passage says is you were sealed with the Holy Spirit, which means the living God of the universe comes and takes up residence in your heart as a seal, or what he says is, as a guarantee that you will get to the end and all his promises are true for you. That is remarkable news. Look at what it says. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the, what's the word? Guarantee. That was weak and sad. It makes me want to cry. Let's say it again, okay? Verse 14, the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee that's it and this promise will deliver it will deliver and so here is what sets us up for today the price has been paid the warranty secure the guarantee is the holy spirit dwelling inside of the hearts of believers that what he began he will complete and you will be with him forever now the presence of the Spirit of God in the heart of the believers is a guarantee of three things. And that's what this passage lays out for us today. It's a guarantee of one, God's possession. And we'll see that in verse 11. It's a guarantee of God's promises. And we'll see that in verses 11 through 14. And it's the, he is the guarantee of God's presence that is the spirit of God dwelling inside of us is the guarantee that God is 
with us. So the Holy Spirit, he is, first of all, the Spirit, he, he's not an it, okay? He's, he's a person. The Spirit of God dwells inside. The living God dwells inside of us as a guarantee of God's possession, of God's promises, and of God's presence. Let's dive right in. The Holy Spirit, guarantee of God's possession. Now, this is a little abstract. I get it. And we're diving into some deep water, so I just am asking that we kind of walk through it with, you know, adjusting the brain a little bit, trying to stay engaged here. What does this mean? It means the Spirit of God, when He comes and takes up residence in your heart by simple faith alone, He is the guarantee that what God did before time began and what he is doing now and what he promises to do are all true. The fact that he comes and lives inside of you is a guarantee that God keeps his word. How do you know the spirit of God is at work and alive in your heart? It's a supernatural thing. It's not like you're going to grab on. How do you know that the spirit of God is at work? Well, the Bible is crystal clear that if you have affection for Jesus Christ, if you believe in him, that is only because the Spirit of God has done that in your life, that he is at work, if you love him. John tells us that the role of the Spirit is to magnify the Son. It's to say Jesus is glorious. So if you love Jesus and you want Jesus, that's a work solely owing to the Spirit of God. Also, how do you know the Spirit of God is at work? It's because conviction happens. When you are not walking in step with God and His ways, there is a conviction. There is an unsettledness. There is an uneasiness. You are not okay to be out of step with God. You want to be in step with Him. It doesn't mean you do not sin. Yes, we sin. We are tempted. But the conviction of the Spirit says we ultimately are not okay with that. We might have felt good first, but it's not right. It's not good. There's a conviction of what righteousness is. There's a hatred for sin. There's a love for the Savior and desire to follow Him. So you fight your sin. That's how you know the Spirit of God is at work. But the Spirit of God also, as we studied in the book of Galatians, the Spirit of God does something in the heart when you have joy in the midst of impossible circumstances, when you love the unlovely, when you're gentle and somebody's not gentle to you, it's called the fruit of the Spirit. You know this verse? The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those things happening in your life in increasing measure is a work of the Spirit of God owing solely to Him. So, the Spirit of God taking up residence, giving you a confidence in the promises of God, giving you a desire for the glory of God, as imperfect as we are. This Spirit is a guarantee in this first point of God's possession. Now, look at verse 11 with me. It says, in Him we have obtained an inheritance. In Him. Who's the Him? Jesus, that's right. Safe answer in here, okay? We love Jesus. We talk about him a lot. So in him means Jesus, okay? Now, the focus of this entire passage, verse 3 all the way through verse 14, has been about how we are united to Christ. It's been about Jesus. The focus is on him and his immeasurable mercy, the greatness of his power, his infinite love upon sinners. It is all about Jesus. So that there's no boasting in us. There's only boasting in Jesus. That's, he's the one that evokes praise. Remember, three refrains. Verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. Verse 12, to the praise of his glory. Verse 14, to the praise of his glory. The point of this passage is that his people would be shouting, would be celebrating. And what causes sinful people to celebrate? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the work of the Father before time. It's the provision of Jesus on the cross. And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer. We celebrate. We praise His glorious grace. 
Now, what does it mean, though, that it says, in him we have obtained an inheritance? Now, this verb is a passive verb, which means it's something being done to us. We are recipients here. So when it says we have obtained, this word, this is the only time it's used in the New Testament in verb form, and then the noun for it is used down in verse 14. So if my grammar lesson didn't totally just mess you up, go down to verse 14. He is the guarantee of our inheritance. Same idea in verse 11 and in verse 14. Now, the word inheritance can be translated as possession. Possession. So in what way has God acted upon us to make us or give us a possession? Let's step back just a second. So when he says, in him we have obtained an inheritance, let's make sure you get it. An inheritance, something that is given, we might think of like, okay, someone passes away, they have furniture, or they have a house, or they have a car, they have money in the bank, and that is given to you. Now here's what's interesting. Same idea, God is giving something to us, But this inheritance is not first about the what, but is first about the who. Here's what I mean. When you look at this passage, the inheritance is wonderful. The what is glorious. In heaven, there will be no more tears. There will be no more suffering. There will be no more night, for the glory of God will shine like the noonday sun. It goes on to say that we have no more sin, no more suffering, have eternal life. You have a new heavens and a new earth. Those are all a part of the inheritance, but before those are the point, God is the point. Because here's what he is saying in verse 11. Before all those are a part of the inheritance, God is saying, the greatest gift of me giving something to you is I'm giving you the fact that I'm going to own you. That's the gift. That I'm going to possess you that you're going to be mine, you're going to be in my family, I will never leave you, and he is what makes all those other things wonderful. New heavens and a new earth are wonderful because God is there. No more tears is wonderful because you're celebrating an ever-increasing joy with God himself. No more night is glorious because you see the glory of God. God is the point. Now, am I just bringing all this kind of in and kind of dump-trucking it into verse 11? No, no. The word means possession, and it has Old Testament roots. And here's where I want to point that out. Exodus chapter 19, verse 5 says this. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my, say the next two words with me, treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. You follow the promise. The promise is, if you follow me, you walk with me, You will be my treasured possession, my loved possession. And so he tells us that it happened. Look at Deuteronomy 7 verse 6. He says, for you are a people, holy to the Lord, set apart for the Lord. The Lord has chosen you, same idea as verse 4 of chapter 1 in Ephesians, chosen us before the foundation of the earth. The Lord has chosen you to be a people For his, what are the words? Treasured possession. Out of all the peoples on the face of the earth, he says, you are mine. You are my treasured possession. I own you. I care for you. Now, Peter picks up on this, just as Paul does in this passage. Peter picks up on it in 1 Peter 2, verse 9, and hear this. He says this, but you are A chosen race. Echoing back to Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. 
You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his, what are the next two words? Own possession. God's work before time began is a work that said, you will be mine and I love you. You will be the apple of my eye. You will be my treasured possession. This is what he is saying in verse 11. In Christ, because Jesus died and rose from the dead, you are God's treasured possession. Now, something you treasure, you take care of, right? Now, what causes you to treasure something? Well, like, let's say you buy some shoes, okay? You've invested some research, maybe, in the type of shoes you want. You've paid some money, and that's good. But that's different than if you invested money in a car. What's the difference? One costs a heck of a lot more, right? It costs you some flow. And so all this money that you put in here, it makes you want to take care of, nurture, like maybe even wash, <laughs> note to self, <laughs> because you gave money for it. But it's not just money that makes something treasured. It could also be time and energy, right? Because there are certain things that have cost you less, but you have given more time to that are more valuable to you or more, you treasure them more because all of the time, all of the energy, all of the focus, all of the research has caused your heart to be like, yes, I like this. I want to make sure and take care of it. Well, let's, let's take it one step further. Because there is a difference, no matter what, in terms of money or in terms of time, there's a difference between things and people. So there's a personal aspect to what you treasure. Things are things. They're going to break. They're going to fade away. We've got people that have a soul. We love and we treasure and we nurture these relationships. All of these things deepen how much we treasure something. And now you look at God. And he tells us how much he treasured us. And that he gave his one and only son. And he crushed him for us. And not only that, Christ left glory. And lived life on this sinful earth. To convince us of the glory of God and of his love. We are a treasured possession. More than any type of thing we can touch, more than any type of thing, we, his people, are a treasured possession. And what does that mean? What do you do for those things that you treasure? You protect them. You preserve them. You care for them. And so... We should dump all of this meaning into the fact that God has made us his own as a treasured possession. But now here's the question that Paul wants to answer. How did we become this treasured possession? He tells us right here, you were predestined according to the purpose of him. You became a treasured possession. You've received this inheritance because you were predestined according to the purpose of God. Now, we heard this same word, predestined, earlier in verse 5. In love, he predestined us to adoption. And we said that that predestining is something that communicated how God has chosen his people before the foundation of the earth. Now, what predestination meant in verse 5 is what it means here as well. To determine or set the boundaries for beforehand. As it says in verse 4, before the foundation of the world. He determined, he set his boundaries. But when you read the word predestination, this is going to get into some more deep waters here, stay with me. It's more about the what than the who. I know I've already used that, but... I'm, I, this is the reverse. It's more about the what than the who. Here's what I mean. 
when it speaks of predestination, it speaks of what you are predestined to. And that's meant to be the emphasis. If you look at verse 5, in love he predestined us to adoption. What is meant to lead our hearts to shout and to celebrate is that sinners before the foundation of the earth have been predestined to adoption, to be included in the family. You shouldn't be. I shouldn't be. But we are by sheer grace and mercy. It's meant to cause us to celebrate. So then you go to Romans 8.28, actually Romans 8.29, and it says those whom he foreknew he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That means what God did before time, he will make happen. Not only your adoption, but you will look more like Jesus. What he begins, he will complete. He doesn't mess up. It doesn't break. It happens. And so now what he's saying is, you were predestined to be God's possession. You were predestined to be God's treasured possession. And so he declared it before time began, and you will be it. You are it, and you will fully realize it when you see him face to face. This is what he's saying. It's not meant to be divisive. It's meant to create praise. That's how Paul says it. And now that predestination is according to the purpose of God. This word purpose has been used several times in this passage. But this purpose is, another word could be God's resolution or God's plan. And it's his plan that happened and was decided on before time began. That's his purpose. And so, his setting the boundaries, his predetermining was to create a plan. And that plan will happen. And so, this predestination is according to the purpose of God. The plan of God will happen. The plan of God will happen. And this is precious. This is not meant to be divisive at all. Because if little old me who can lose his keys and who can forget what happened yesterday can mess up God's eternal plan, then I have zero certainty that his promises are going to come true for me. Zero. Because I can mess it all up. What this is saying is no. You will not be able to break up God's plan of making you his child, making you into the image of his son, and making you his treasured possession. You won't be able to break it. It's what he has said before time began. And so it's meant to comfort us. It's meant to encourage us. No matter what storm blows into our life, he will carry his people to the praise of his glorious grace. And so, Paul, in 2 Timothy chapter 1, deals with the same subject and tells us that it is massively helpful for us not to be afraid. Do you battle with fear? I battle with anxiety, sinful anxiety at times, where I just wrestle and wrestle because I don't know the future. Wrestle with certain circumstances that might be happening. That fear, fear of people, fear of the unknown, fear of circumstances. Where do we get the energy to repent of that? Where do we get the power to not be afraid? Paul tells us, and you might be shocked where the fuel comes from. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7 through 9. For God gave us a spirit, not a fear. Can you say that? Not a fear. <laughs> we have a spirit, not a fear, but of power and love and self-control. We do not need to be afraid. Instead, his Holy Spirit resides in us to give us power. Everything we need for life and godliness, Peter tells us. Everything we need for life now and life to come, we have because God is with us. Power, love, self-control, it's ours. Where does that come from? He says, therefore, because you haven't been given a spirit of fear, but the Holy Spirit of power and love of self-control, he says, don't be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, 
nor of me, Paul, a prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Who is this God who can keep us from being afraid and save us? Answer, it's the God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Here's the good news, not because of works. Not because of what we can do. His work before the foundation of the earth was not built upon our loveliness or our goodness. If it was, we would wreck the whole ship. Not because of works, but because of his own, what's the next word? Purpose. Same word that's here. His purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Summary. You don't have to be afraid because before time began, God's purpose was established and it will continue. You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. And so you and your fear, you have to go back and Paul is forcing our minds to go where they never go before time began to say, I started something. And the Spirit of God in your heart, as imperfect as you are, is a guarantee that you are God's possession and that what he began, he will complete. So, he's not only, the Spirit of God is not only a guarantee of God's possession, but of God's promises. The presence of the Spirit of God in the heart is a guarantee of these three promises, and I want to go through them quickly. They're in this text. It's a guarantee of all of his promises, but there are three that are addressed here. Number one, the promise is, look at verse 11. It says, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's the first promise. The second promise, that through faith you can be saved. That's found in verse 13. And the third promise is, through faith you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. I've really already addressed the second two, so I'm going to spend time on the first one. What does it mean when Paul says, who works all things according to the counsel of his will? God made us his treasured possession. He did that by predestining us according to God's purpose. And who is this God that did all this work? He is the one who presently works all things according to the counsel of his will. Works. He works all things. It's, it's a word that's used for God's power. His power is being exerted right now to work all things according to the counsel of his will. Now you hear the word all things. What does all things mean? All things. Thank you very much. All. Here's note to self. I know it's going to be revolutionary. All means all. Okay? All. There's nothing in the all that slides through the fingers and there's something else down here. All means all. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. So what does it mean that there's the counsel of his will? Counsel means this wise, loving deliberation and whatever is deliberated, like let's say a Senate hearing, they're, they're deliberating and then whatever their decision is, is their will. So let's just say, parents... You've, you found a little money somewhere, and you're trying to figure out what you're going to do with that money. So maybe it's a little more money than you thought, and you might be able to take a vacation. Maybe it just means you might be able to eat out today, okay? So you found some money, and the, let's say the two parents, they're going to talk. And as they talk, they're deliberating, and they're trying to think what it means to bless their kids. So they're just deliberating, and then all of a sudden, after they've deliberated, then they say, we've made a decision. We're going to Bojangles, okay? <laughs> Wasn't a lot of money in the pocket. So they made a decision. We're going to Bojangles, okay? That we are going to Bojangles is their will. That is the decision that was made. So now God, in his infinite wisdom, before time began, deliberated, made a decision, and his purposes, his will is now going forth in all things that happen. Now, if that didn't hurt your head, 
let me make sure we understand what it means in the Bible by will. Will is used two different ways in the Bible. I know, dude. I'm like, I can just see it. It's like, whoo, glory. He's going in places that are hurting my head. Okay, keep, keep with me. Two different ways in the Bible. The first will is a will of command. That means God commands us both positive and negative things. Negative things like don't murder, don't lie, don't commit adultery, bad things. Don't do those things, right? But there's also positive things that are his will, his will of command. That is, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Build one another up. Speak grace. Those are all commands. Just as a side note, some of you are wondering what the will of God for your life is. Why don't we start there? Why don't we start with what he says to do and what he says not to do? That will really help you on your way of trying to figure out what God has for you. Start with what he's already told you is crystal clear. Sometimes we negate this in order to just try to think what we should do next. His will of command is really clear. And as you relate to him, he will guide you. Because there's also not just a will of command, but a will of decree. A will of decree is what he has determined will happen. It's what has happened in history. Now, I use, at times, I use the ESV study Bible. A study Bible is a really helpful tool which kind of has some paragraphs underneath that explain what verses mean. I highly recommend them because they help weak minds like mine understand the Bible. So, I encourage you. Here's a quote from the ESV study Bible on Ephesians 1.11, which says, Having predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, the study Bible says this, God is sovereign, directing all things freely. He's not forced to. All things freely according to his royal counsel. This is in sharp contrast to the pagan gods of the time who were understood to be often fickle or bound by an inscrutable and arbitrary fate. It also goes on to say, those who work all things or who works all things according to the counsel of his will is best understood to mean that every single event that occurs is in some sense predestined by God. Now, that can uh, hurt your head a little bit, make you a little uneasy. Doesn't need to. It's just what the Bible says. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. All things. This does not in any way negate human responsibility. This is the mystery we talked about two weeks ago. For the sake of us trying to better grasp this, I'm actually repeating a small portion of a quote that I gave two weeks ago. So yes, I do know that I'm repeating a quote that I gave two weeks ago. It's in order to help us not be panicked by these statements of God's sovereignty, but instead to be comforted. Tim Keller says this, Your plans are yours. Your choices are yours. God is not forcing you in either direction. If you do something stupid, wicked, cruel, or selfish, there will be bad consequences. People will hold you accountable, and they should. And God will hold you accountable, and he should. Those plans are your, or choices are yours. But what actually happens in history, whether it's your words, Proverbs 16.1, or deeds in Proverbs 16.3 and 9, those are absolutely controlled and totally fixed and set by God. There is nothing that is not according to his plans. Your choices belong to you, and whatever happens is completely fixed. You're saying, how can that be? It's called a mystery. The Bible says this much, and that's as far as we go. We don't want to go beyond it, but we don't want to undershoot it. We want to say what the Bible says. And so, the biblical understanding is this. Let me finish the quote. It doesn't say your choices have no connection to your destiny. Nor does it say your choices determine your destiny. Instead, the Bible says God relates your choices partially to your destiny, but he is the one who fixes everything, end quote. He works 
all things according to the counsel of his will. That's what Paul is stating. 100% responsible, 100% determined. This is our God. Now, you immediately say, but what about the bad things that have been happening? What about bad things? Well, let's make it a little worse before it gets better. Proverbs 16.4. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. This is in the Bible. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. The wicked are responsible for their choices and they will be judged. But everything that is happening is according to the plan of God in some way, shape, or form. And I do not understand all of that. But here's what I do. Not to get rid of the mystery, but to diffuse the tension. I run to the cross. Because that tension is clearly seen at the cross. And here's where you can hear it. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 and 28. It said, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Stop there. Herod sinned. Pontius Pilate sinned. The Gentiles sinned. The peoples of Israel sinned. They mocked Jesus. They crucified an innocent man, let alone the Son of God. Sin abounds everywhere there, and they are responsible for it, and they will be judged for that sin if they do not repent. But, listen to how the verse ends. They did whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. The cross was not an accident. The cross was not a mistake. It wasn't a secondary thought. It was something that was determined before time began as part of God's plan. And that plan is a mystery. And like I said, I cannot get rid of mystery. It's in the Bible. You're responsible and God is fully in control. But we can diffuse the tension because the cross is what helps us to know there is hope in the midst of all the difficulty that is a part of God's plan. One pastor said it this way. The cross is where God proved that he was in control when everything was out of control. The cross was where God proved that he knew what he was doing when it seemed like chaos and Satan were winning. The cross was where God proved he was right even when what was happening was wrong. The cross proved that God was good even when all that was happening was bad. The cross is where God showed that he loved his people even when his people were not loving him. Dear friends, the cross clearly shows us that even when everything looks bleak, our God is at work for our good and his glory, and we must trust him. My wife and I went to Asheville, North Carolina last weekend just to have some time to get away and as we did so, we, I'd never been to Asheville and like, like been there, been there. I've driven through, but never been there, been there. And so as we were there, the forecast was rain the entire time. And I'm like, I don't go to the mountains to stare at rain clouds. I'm like, God, please, can I please see the mountains? Literally prayed all week long. God, can I see the mountains? And so we drive late Thursday night, and we show up, and so it's pitch black. We obviously did not see the mountains when we drove in because it was dark. And so we go to sleep, and we wake up, and I'm wondering, okay, we've seen this view, what it's supposed to look like. Is it going to show mountains or not? And here's what we saw. You know, have a picture. This is what we saw. Do you see that? 
those mountains back there. That was, that was Jesus giving me a gift. I loved it. I'm sitting there and I'm staring at it. And look, as you zoom in, you see that it wasn't like just one little mountain. It was layers of mountains. You see that? It's really dark up front. There's one mountain, but then there's a mountain behind that mountain. And then there's some mountains behind that mountain. And it's the layers that I love. I love the mountains. It was just glorious. And so I was so thankful. And you want to see the picture from the next day? Here's the next day. Boom. That's the exact same view. There's no mountains. It's just clouds. But I will tell you, we were able to walk around without getting rained on very much. It was glorious. We had a great time. But this is one view. And the previous day was this view. Did the mountains go away? No. But when I looked at the clouds, and this is all I could see was just clouds, it was like, where did they go? This is what suffering does. The clouds come in, the clouds of pain, and they try to convince you that God is not at work and he is not present. And what Paul is doing in Ephesians 1 is with hurricane force winds, he is taking us to where our minds never go, and that is before time began. And he is saying that I am always, always, always present, and I'm always at work for your good and my glory. And he blows back the clouds so that one day we will see his work and we will know that he is there. This is what Paul is doing in Ephesians chapter 1. To the praise of his glorious grace, our God is at work. There was a song I used to sing to my kids before I put them to bed. And it was by a hymn writer named William Cowper. And it says this, You fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds you so much dread are big with mercy and shall break with blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Our God moves in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. He plants his footsteps in the sea, and he rides upon the storm. Our God is at work in the clouds. He is at work in the trial. Judge him not by your feeble understanding, but trust him for his grace. He is always, always at work. And Paul says, because God did something before time began, you can know all of his promises are sure. The Holy Spirit inside of his people is a guarantee, is a guarantee that what God began, he will complete. Not only what he did back there, but what he is doing now and what he will do is something you can take to the bank. The promises are sure. He is working all things, all things, all things according to the counsel of his will. And if you trust in him, verse 13 says you will be saved. And if you trust in him, his Holy Spirit comes and seals your heart. And that's the final uh, point. And I promise you, I got two minutes. Here it goes. He's a guarantee. Of the presence of God. When the Spirit of God is in your heart, it means God is with you and He will never leave you. And what He secures you for is worth the wait. I don't know if you watched this week, but it was supposed to be a basketball game for the ages Duke versus North Carolina. One individual paid north of 10 grand for one seat. It was said that there was a man who brought his entire family from Seattle paying over $2,000 per ticket to go to this game. And one of the largest reasons people invested in this game was because Zion Williamson, a player for the decades he is being heralded as, was going to be on the court. And so the game starts and 36 seconds in, Zion plants the foot, his shoe blows out, his foot goes through the shoe and he hurts his knee and he doesn't play the rest of the game. And I'm sitting there thinking like, oh my, you just paid 10 grand to watch this dude blow a knee out in 36 seconds and then the game was horrible. Now, if you're a UNC fan, you probably thought it was beautiful but if you love Duke it was a bad game you know they lost by 10 plus or whatever anyway 
Imagine buyer's remorse. That's what you had. I paid two grand for a bad game and Zion wasn't there. What did I just do? And here's what I want to promise you. The Holy Spirit is a guarantee. As a guarantee, you will never have buyer's remorse. It will never let you down. It will only exceed your expectations. It says in chapter 3, immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. And it begins now. He's with you. He's with you. There is nothing you will face that he will leave you in the midst of. And there is nothing you will face that with him, he will not give you all the power you need to walk with him. So it says, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit until you acquire possession of that inheritance to the praise of his glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I just ask, I ask that what we saw with this baptism would lead our hearts to celebrate. I pray that what you would do in this moment would cause those who are believers in this room to shout that you started something before time began and you are at work right now carrying it out to completion. I pray that there would be shouts of praise that well up in our heart that your Holy Spirit is at work and you will never leave us. So we need not fear. We need not despair. You are at work. Father in heaven, please. Please. We ask in prayer that you would make us more like your son. We ask that love would abound in our hearts because of the great love with which you loved us. We ask that we would care for others because you have first cared for us as your treasured possession. Father, it's in this moment right now that we just want to hold our hands out and say, do with me what you wish. Take me where I need to go. Give me faith where my faith is weak. Rid me of sin that is causing me to limp through life. Give me power to overcome the things that I struggle with. Give me joy in the midst of my suffering. Give me your perspective in the midst of the trials that I am facing. Give me your heart for those that I need to love. Whatever it is, hold your hands out and ask for God to move in this moment right now. Although we're not going to take the Lord's Supper today, we will take it this evening. But right now the prayer is the same. We confess His glory. We confess our sin. We confess his solution. We just come and celebrate his goodness. And if there's someone in this room that has never, has never called out to Jesus to wreck their lives, to forgive them of their sins and to make them new, today is the day that that can happen. And I pray, oh God, that you would do it. Right now, you don't have to have everything figured out. But right now, he is calling you to surrender your life wholly to him. Confess your sin. Confess him as your only hope. Ask him to come and take up residence in your life. Surrender your life to him today. Wherever you find yourself, we're going to take just a few moments of reflection and then we will sing about our great God as we continue.